right, well, good morning. As always, great to see everyone here today. Uh, we're going to jump in this morning. We're continuing uh, our study through the book of Genesis in the beginning. We've, uh, I've made it through a whopping three chapters so far and felt like I, I've just scratched the surface. But uh, today, you're going to try to pick up a little ground and catch up to your reading plan. If you have uh, the scripture notebooks that we gave out in the first few weeks of the year, uh, you can also follow along this morning either in your Bible in that scripture notebook uh, or in our church app today, there's, uh, the passages are there as well as a place for notes also. Uh, but today I'm going to look at two chapters, chapters 4 and 5. And yes, I'm still behind on your reading plan and will be throughout this one. Uh, last week, though, we were in chapter 3, and we looked at the fall of man, right? That, uh, the, the great blunder that man made, though God gave him all of creation, all these things, and yet said, just do me this one thing and stay away from this tree, the tree of knowledge, right? The knowledge of good and evil. And yet, what does man do? Man does just that. And so we saw the, the fall of man and then the curse that follows that, which is why today, if you go to a zoo, uh, the animals don't wear clothes, right? Uh, but the people who visit it, Fortunately do, right? And that's all because of sin, right? That sin had to be covered. It had to be atoned for. Now, last week, uh, I didn't get quite as far as I wanted to. Left a lot of uh, notes out, and, and, and each service was different, and so I can't remember exactly where I was with this one, but I want to back up a little bit into chapter 3 and just highlight a couple verses if we can. First of all, verse 17, right? Verse 17 uh, is when Adam, actually the, God curses the ground, but he's telling Adam that the ground will now be cursed all because he listened to his wife. Now, men, what I want to say is that is not a life verse, all right? We don't hang on to that one and say, see here, it's all your fault from the very beginning. That's not one to hang on to because remember, it was because he failed to lead as God had called him to lead that the mistake, the, the blunder was made in the first place. So I know men like to hang on to that one and quote it to their wives a lot. I wouldn't go there, right? <laughs> that's, that's a losing fight for you. Then secondly, we close out chapter, 20, uh, chapter 3 in verse, with verse 24, and I know I didn't make it there in this service, but it's there where God, after he banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, and, and the text tells us in verse 24 that he placed there at that entrance to, uh, to Eden, wherever that is today, he placed cherubim and flaming sword that would go back and forth to prevent man from going back into the Garden of Eden. Now, when you read that, uh, understand this. God, when he was placing those cherubim, those, those swords, to, to, to where man could not re-enter the garden, that was there to protect man, right? It was, it was there to protect him because, remember, in the garden was also not only the tree of knowledge that he told them don't eat of that, and they did, and, and of course, sin entered the world from that and death with sin, but then there was also another tree that he spoke of later, and it was the tree of life. And so God, before he places these swords and these cherubim to, to prevent them from going back in, he reminds them, listen, if we don't, they'll, they'll come back in. And now they'll eat of this tree. Now what's interesting is they could have eaten from that tree prior to the fall, right? It wasn't off limits. But now it is, and you think, well, well, why is that a good thing? Why would God not want them to go back and eat that tree? Because remember, they were now in a fallen state. And so if they were to enter back into the garden and now eat from the tree of life, which he forbid, and why would they not? They certainly didn't listen to him when he said, stay away from the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil, right? And so if they go back and eat of the tree of life now, they will be in a fallen state, but they will live in a fallen state forever. So God, to protect man, said, I, I want to protect them from that. Why? Because he had a plan that would include his son for redemption, so that now we don't live forever and bless God in this fallen world with these fallen bodies, we don't live forever. Can I get an amen? 
right? And so what God knew is there's something far greater for you. So if they do experience death, I want to give them a redemption so they can live with me in glory in heaven forever. So it was there to protect him. I often say it's like this, kind of like the baby gate you put in your house, right? You put that gate, baby gate in to protect the child, right? It's not a prison. It's for protection. Now, for some of your children, maybe a prison. <laughs> I get it, right? But, but for the most part, right, for most of us, we put it there because we don't want our child to go into a place where they might hurt themselves. So, so it's there to protect us. And I think today too many people view Christianity uh, more like these flaming swords of prohibitions. That's what it's all about. It's just all these, hey, here's all the things you can't do. God created some great things, but he's telling a hands off, you can't have it now, right? And so if I become a Christian, that's all it's going to be is all the things I want to do, and yet I can't do. The things I would enjoy to do, but God's word tells me not to do. And people look at it like that. But, but what I want you to remember, one of the reasons we're in Genesis here in the beginning is because that's not it at all, is it? It's not limitations, but liberties we see with God. I said, you can have it all. Just stay away from that one tree, right? God is not a God of limitations, but, but liberties. And what we're going to see already played out in the text, and certainly today, but he's also a God of love. And so with that said, kind of laying the, 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 the groundwork for us this morning, let's look at Genesis chapter 4. And I'm going to read a lot today. I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to, I'm going to read a lot because I really want to, to read this narrative in its entirety and, and even into the next chapter. And then what we're going to do is after I read that, then we'll kind of parse out uh, a couple messages from the text. But Genesis chapter 4, remember it is Moses uh, who is writing the book of Genesis through the inspiration of God. Moses writes beginning in verse 1, The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood that you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain was 
intimate with his wife. And she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain became the builder of a city. And he named the city Enoch after his son. Irad was born to Enoch. Irad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methushael. And Methushael fathered Lamech. Boy, aren't you glad you're not the one up here reading today, amen? <laughs> Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Ida and the other named Zillah. Ida bore Jabel. He was the father of the nomadic herdsmen. His brother was named Jubal. He was the first of all who played the lyre and the flute. It was Jubal who was really the father of all, all music, right? It's where we get our word jubilation today, right? Just a little shout out to our, to our worship uh, group this morning. If it wasn't for that, I would have stopped a little sooner. Let's, let's go down to chapter 5 now, begin verse 1. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Adam lived 800 years and father, excuse me, Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Adam's life lasted 900 years and 30 years and then he died now this morning I said I covered a lot of ground in scripture this morning but what I want to do I want us to begin here because there are two issues or uh, topics if you will that kind of uh, jump off the pages and and I want to lean into those before we get into our main message this morning and the first one is this it's that question that so many people have where did Cain and possibly Abel as well, but where did Cain get his wife? Where'd she come from? Now, today, let me say this in our beginning, I'm going to deal with some topics that we don't often talk about, right? Uh, you, you don't hear that at church, but, it, but here's the reason I want to lean into this, because I think too often we raise generations through the church, and yet there are those topics or, or those thoughts, that, those issues that we don't really deal with. And so what happens is then they grow up in the church and when they go out and they find themselves in college or, or in careers or in military, whatever the case may be, and, and they get challenged with some of these questions, they have no response. Right? Why? Because the church never dealt with it. Either because they just didn't want to or perhaps the church just took for granted that they knew the answers already. So I want us to jump in here. Where did Cain get his wife? Now, there are a lot of things that float around out there. Some say, aha. That's evolution for you. See, those, those tadpoles kept having uh, frogs, which kept having monkeys, which kept becoming people. So there are more people out there, right? That has to be where it came from. Well, that's ludicrous. Uh, there are others that say, well, obviously, God created others. Not only did he create Adam and Eve, but, but he created others as well. But our problem with that, and you even get into theistic evolution issues. But our problem with that is Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And then in Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, we're told from one man, God, he has made every nationality to live under the whole earth. So we're reminded throughout Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, God made one man, he made one woman, and all creation came from him. 
And the reason we read so much today, and I got into chapter 5, is because what we saw in verses, in, in specifically in, in verse 4, but verses 4 and 5, Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth. And he fathered other sons and daughters as well. Right? As a matter of fact, if you go back to, to, to verse 1 there, where it opened up, notice, notice Eve's response. I have had a male child with the Lord's help. Which kind of leads you to think perhaps she had had several female children prior to that. We don't know. We're not told that. But what we are told is that they had many other sons and daughters. Verse 5, so Adam lived 930 years past that. That's a lot of childbearing, right? And, and, and so certainly the children of Adam and Eve intermarried, without a doubt. And you say, well, David, that... That's incest, isn't it? That, that's wrong. We'll understand at the time it, it was not. Today, of course, it is. And we see that played out uh, through, throughout the, the early scriptures as well. If you recall, and we're going to get into this here in a few weeks, uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, was his half-sister. Right? He used that for other reasons later, and we're going to look at that in the weeks ahead. But, but we see that. Certainly, uh, it had to take place again with the grandchildren of Noah because all other man was wiped off the face of the earth. But in the case of the children, not only of Adam and Eve, but certainly Noah's grandchildren as well, it was a necessity. It was a necessity due to, to population, though, and not perversion. That's not what this is about at all. Also, remember this. Remember when God created, he created good. In fact, when he created man and had completed all creation, he said, it's what, church? Very good, right? He created good. He created even very good. And so because of that, the human genetic code, if you will, was, was very clean. It was free from mutations or defects like, like we have filled in our world today, cancers and, and other things that take place. And it, in fact, it was likely not until the time of Moses that the genetic code really got polluted, which is why we see in Leviticus chapter 18 that it was then and there that God gave his laws and specific commandments Condemning both incest as well as homosexuality. But prior to that time, uh, it was not yet polluted. Right? It wasn't unhealthy in the early days. I mean, it's kind of the, the, the same idea. It, it is today because of those mutations. It's just like, you guys know this, uh, a, a mutt dog will outlive a purebred dog by far. Right? Why? Because of the way they get that purebred dog. They, they, they breed them because they want them a certain size or a certain hair length or a certain nose shape. And so they find a dog that has that and another dog, and they, they put them together. And when they have puppies and the, the, those puppies, and they replace, they just keep going down that same genetic line so that they get that same dog, right? And so because of that, they typically have shorter lifespans because of the inbreeding that's required for that breed of, of animal. And what we know about man then, the mutations that we have, all go back to the original sin. It's all related to the original fall. And, and really, the truth is, when you think about it, uh, we're, we're all, we all go back to Adam and Eve. Every one of us in this room, right? We all. So really, when you think about it, you did marry a relative. That's not just the Tennessee, Kentucky thing, right? We got a lot of people from California here now, I know, and you, you may have some different thoughts about what happens down, you know, in the South, but uh, no, we all, it's true for everyone, right? Because we all go back to Adam and Eve, right? The difference is, at least in Tennessee, I'm not going to speak for Kentucky, um, but, you know, we just don't marry close relatives, right? I'm not picking on Kentucky, I just, I don't live there, I can't speak for them, right? 
But we don't marry close relatives anymore. Now, understand this also. Many believe that at the time of this murder, Cain was likely 120 years old. Certainly by the time that he was banished from Eden. And so he even speaks into that. He says his fear that he had was that his own relatives then, the other people that were there who would have been his relatives, distance at that time, but nonetheless relatives, would kill him because he had killed his brother, their uncle, their brother, their, their nephew. Right? I mean, excuse me, going down the line, right? That it was one of their relatives. And so there, by that point, you need to understand, there would have been a significant population on this earth. I did a, a little bit, I did my own little case study. I took one set of my grandparents. They were married around 1900, right? My, excuse my, my great-grandparents. I was married around 1900. And all I did was kind of do uh, uh, did a case study on just the genealogy tree from them, right? They got married, and, and they had children. Their children, children had children, you know, so on and so on and so forth. And taking out uh, all spouses, not anyone they married, but just those who were born because of that original two around 1900 constitutes 100 people in this world today for my family. 100 just for, from those two in 123 years. Right now, thinking about that, I wanted to take that a step farther, but no, but also knew that I didn't have the, the wisdom to pull this off. So I reached out to a man by the name of Chris Stevens, one of our own church members here. He is the MTSU math department chair. Right? So, I, so I'm throwing him some stats. I said, Hey, run these numbers for him, and he did. And here's what we understood if you look at the average lifespan, that as you read chapter five, it goes on, it names out nine different patriarchs. By name, of those nine that are mentioned in chapter five, the average age is 912 years. The average lifespan was 912 years at that time, right? Excluding Enoch, who was taken up uh, directly to God, just like Elijah was. But so when I gave to Chris, I said, "All right, assuming long lifespans, uh, and then also fertility spans that would last over 100 years, we saw that Adam had a child, a Seth, right when he was 130. So uh, fertility that would spend, uh, span over 100 years as well." Now let's take into consideration there was no contraception at that time, right? And they were commissioned by God to multiply, right? So with that in mind, here's what I gave to him. Uh, taking all that data in mind, if they began having children at the age of 17 and a half, which I believe is a, is a, is a, is a fair age, and they had a child every 15 months, which would likely be the case, there would be over 200,000 people on the earth at the time of the murder. Isn't that fascinating? We think of Adam and Eve and there's just a handful of people. No. Hey, the city of Murfreesboro today is, is about 160,000 people, right? So the population at the time of the murder was, was larger than the city of Murfreesboro today. Fortunately for them, the traffic wasn't near as bad, right? Uh, but but, but that, was, that was kind of giving you an idea of the population there. Well, the second issue that comes into play here, the question that people have, uh, we've already dealt with the incest, right? What a blessed morning today. Um, polygamy, right? If you look at verse 19, it says Lamech took two wives for himself. He said, well, maybe the other died, possibly, but, but it didn't look that way because of the lifespans. It appears that he literally took two wives for himself, just as Scripture says. And in fact, we see this even more uh, in, in latter Old Testament times in the Bible as well. First Kings chapter 11, verse 3 says that Solomon had over 700 
700 wives. Can you imagine the to-do list that Joker had, right? 700 wives. I mean, I, my dog gets you no state. Um, right, over 700 wives. So here's the question. Is God okay with polygamy? Is he? I mean, man, we see it early on. I mean, here, here in Genesis, so quickly, is God okay with that? And the answer is no. God allowed it, just like he allows us to choose other sins even today. Just like he allowed the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden, he allowed man that choice, but it wasn't his desire for man, right? And in Scripture, I say this often, there are times when it is describing and times when it is prescribing. Prescribing things we should do, like the, the, the Great Commission and other things. We, these are the, the orders we are to carry out. And then times it's just describing what was taking place at that time. My goodness, it describes um, Judas going out and hanging himself. A horrific act. But God wasn't glorifying that. God wasn't prescribing that. It was simply describing what had taken place. So, so we see that throughout Scripture. But additionally, in, in the latter biblical times, uh, following uh, the flood, right? In latter biblical times, there were two social issues that were greatly in play as well. Uh, the first was that the fact that, that men in that day in particular had very short lifespans. And they did so for several reasons. One, because they would often go to war uh, and they would be killed in hand-to-hand -hand combat on the front line, right? So th there was the issue of war. There was also horrific work conditions at that time, and many people would often be killed just doing their regular their jobs. And they had very limited medical knowledge at that time as well. They were, they were limited there. And so men often had very short lifespans. Additionally, in patriarchal societies, right, for, for, for women who were either unmarried or widowed, it was difficult and almost impossible for them to provide for themselves, and certainly if they had children as well. So it's where the kinsman redeemer comes into play, right? And so that would be common as well. But what you have to remember is God's plan, God's design from the very beginning that we've looked at already was that monogamy. Well, it, was, it was a monogamous relationship from the very beginning. One man with one woman for life. That was God's design. That, that was God's plan, and then they would procreate. We see that in Genesis 2, 24. It was man who deviated from God's plan. It was man who then ushered in sin and death, right? And so the polygamy that we see played out early on in, in Scripture is simply because of that. And by the way, if you continue reading in 1 Kings chapter 11, Solomon's polygamy is what actually turned him away from God. It was his polygamy that went against God's desire for his life, that actually became his complete downfall. And then you look at the rest of the New Testament, my goodness, Acts, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, they all address God's desire for man to hold to his original design for a covenant monogamous relationship in marriage. The entire New Testament speaks into that. But what I love about Scripture, because sometimes people get so hung up on these things, it's just how simply straightforward the Word of God is. Isn't it? I mean, Moses gives a very simple and straightforward account in the early chapters of Genesis. He even gives us all the details, ages of all the people, right, that was passed down. Listen, if the Bible were made up, right, if those things were in, one, they, they would have taken that out altogether, but if they had left it in, there would be an effort or an attempt to answer those questions, right, within Scripture. But it's not necessary. 
Right? Because we can simply take the word precisely it is given to us. Right? It is what it is. And there are no unanswered questions within the Bible. Right? And isn't it a shame how often our, our kids leave here and they feel like the Bible is full of unanswered questions. They're all there. Friends, we, we pound all the time sola scriptura, right? The Bible itself is, is complete. It alone is authoritative, and it alone is absolute truth, period. Every answer to every question is here. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Every word we have is from God. And every answer to every question is in his word. Period. It is sufficient. Scripture alone. Now, understand this too, and we need to get into today's message, but as we look at this, what I want us to see and what I want us to camp is really the, the offering then of Cain and Abel that's played out here. Now, some feel that as you look at this passage, some feel that it's kind of unfair the way God treats them. I mean, to have to be pleased with one over another offering that, that just doesn't seem fair. I mean, they gave what they chose. This person gave what they chose. It, it seems like God is being unrealistic or, or unfair here. And really, people are kind of divided into two different camps or ideologies when it comes to this. One that focuses simply on the sacrifice itself. The other then that focuses more on the heart of what is given, the heart of the offering. And, and I want us to look at both today. As you look at the sacrifice that was given, Cain, it says, was what? Working the ground, working the ground that had been cursed. Remember, we, we looked at that from verse 17, right? God told Adam the ground will be cursed, and yet Cain was working the cursed ground. Abel, on the flip side, he says he was exercising the dominion that God had given man over all the animals, right? Now, understand this too, being both a farmer and a shepherd were, were both honorable occupations at, at the time. They, they really were. And also remember this too, at this point... Both man and animals were still vegetarians, right? We still weren't eating meat yet. That means that the animals that Abel was raised, why would he be a shepherd if you weren't eating, right? What would the purpose be? He would have been a shepherd, by the way, of either sheep or goats, and some translations will even spell that out. But the reason that he would be raising these sheep or goats, these animals, was for two purposes, either to be used for clothes or to be used as a sacrifice, and often for both. That would be the, the whole purpose of raising these herds was in order to, to give sacrifice to God. Now also, we understand that Abel's offering was a blood sacrifice. Right? We, we, we go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. That's when man had fallen, when, when, when sin and rebellion was introduced. And it said the Lord God made clothing from the skins of the animals for the man and his wife. And then he clothed them. See, fig leaves were no longer sufficient, right? God made that clear. Something had to die. A sacrifice of blood was necessary in order to atone for the sin they had given. That was the only thing that could cover them. With, with, uh, life would have to be lost. Blood would have to be spilled. Now, for us today, uh, Hebrews 10.4 tells us that, 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 that no longer 
that we sacrifice animals. My goodness, you, you don't see me up here with a knife and, and a sheep and I'm mean, just, just making a mess, right? We got the concrete for it. It wouldn't be a big deal to clean up, but, but we don't do that, right? Why? Because it's no longer necessary. Hebrews 10, 4 says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sin. What replaced that? Why, why all of a sudden did that stop? Because of the sacrifice of our Lord. Jesus became that atonement for us, right? We, we, we don't sacrifice animals anymore. Now, that being said, what we have here then in this passage is this, I believe, just is this beautiful picture of God still desiring to be with man. You know, I mean, he, he's still asking for that offering, for that, for that sacrifice. Even after the fall, even after man had turned against God, even after he was ejected from the Garden of Eden, yet God still wants to be with man. And so, obviously, there was some kind of sacrificial system that was put in place. Very, very likely, very possibly, it was there at the entryway to the, to the Garden of Eden, perhaps where the cherubim and the, and the swords were flashing, right? And it was there that man would give an offering to God. And it was there at that time that as both Cain and Abel brought their offering, it says that God showed regard for Abel's offering. Now, the word regard there, if you look at the Hebrew, it simply means to pay attention to something, to, to gaze at it significantly, right? And so it's really not a picture that many of us have that God saw Cain's offering and just shunned it altogether. Really, the picture we have is that, that God just looked intently at Abel's. He, he looked with favor upon Abel's, right? And notice, that, notice what Abel brought. Look at, look at the distinction between the two. Abel brought the firstborn of his flocks. Do you see that? His first fruits, the, the very first animals that were born, that's what he brought in. And not only did he bring in the firstborn, the first fruits, but it says also the, the fat or the, the choice offerings. See, Abel was holding nothing back. He was absolutely give, giving his best to God. But notice what it says about Cain. Cain only brought some of his crops. Do you see that? Abel, the, the first of it, but Cain, just, just some of his crops. And so you get this picture of this comparison where, where Abel brings in his first and his best. Cain brings in his excess. Yeah, possibly even his seconds. The, the, the bruised produce. You know, stuff's getting a little wilty. Maybe the stuff he didn't like. You know, he kept them fresh-grown tomatoes and zucchini for himself. Brought God okra, you know, just the things that he didn't want. That's kind of the picture that we give. At a minimum, he only gave a, a small portion. He just gave him some of his crops. See, I believe both Cain and Abel, they both knew, they both understood what kind of offering that God had asked for. Friends, when it comes to our worship, when it comes to what we, how, how, how we give to God, it's not only about what we want to give, but it's also about what God has asked of us. It's about the precedent that, that he has set for us. As we worship him, it's really just saying, God, I believe in how much you've given me, and, and this is now how I want to worship you. This is how I want to give to you. God gave us his best. Jesus certainly gave us his best. And so when it comes to our worship to him, that's the question for today. Do we give him our best? Do you give him your best? I often say this, you know, it's sad that a lot of times we worship our work, don't we? I mean, work is our God. It is where we find our identity. 
as people ask you about yourself, you generally, first thing you do is tell them what you do, right? It's our identity. It's where we spend all of our time, all of our reason. It's what we think is in control of our lives. That's where, where our money comes from. That's where our, you know, we, th- we worship our work. And then what happens is we work at our play, right? Like with, with the time that we have left after we've given so much to our work, we have our extracurriculars. And man, with our extracurriculars, we do all we can. Right? We want the best, you know, whatever that is, a sport, fishing, you, whatever it is. You, you want to learn about it. You want to work at it. You want to be the best you can at it. So we worship our work. We work at our play. And then with whatever's left, we play at our worship. Here, God, here, here's the excess. He, here's what I have left. And so where are you? Kind of like Cain, you just kind of give God what, what's excess? Or, or more like Abel? So I... God, I want to give you my first. I want to give you my best, my thoughts, my time, my resources. It's been said we should give God the first hour of every day, the first dime of every dollar, and the first consideration in every thought. That's worship. That's what Abel was doing. Abel's offering was accepted, not not just because it was an animal, not just because it was his first and his best, because it, it came from his heart. And it was given according to what God had obviously revealed to them in how they were to worship and how they were to sacrifice. Cain, on the other hand, just disdaining the divine instruction, right? He just brought what he wanted. He brought some of his crop. And that's it. Hebrews 11.4 says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. And by faith, then, He was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. You know, really giving to God means we're stepping out in faith. Giving to God is that picture of that first fruit. God, I'm going to give to you before I give to myself. But by faith, I'm going to understand, but God, you've got the rest of the month for me. Right? I, I don't mind giving to God first because I know God's got me. And that's what he's saying. That... That's the faith. That's faithful worship. That's faithful stewardship. That's that's faithful giving. You know, in in this story, Cain and Abel represent all of mankind. It really does. We all have a choice to make, to to follow the will of God or the way of the world. That's it. I'm going to close this out here. Notice in verse 7. God still offers restitution with Cain. And basically, he said this isn't, Cain, you made a mistake. You blew it bad. You made a mistake, but that doesn't have to define you. And the anger that we see here, notice it came from Cain, right? I mean, look how he responded to God. I don't know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? The anger came from God from the very beginning, even before the murder. Not from God. It came from Cain. But notice what God said. God said, listen, Cain, don't let this anger, don't let this sin rule you. Instead, you rule it. He encouraged it. He said, listen, do what's right. It's not too late. Don't let it get a hold of you. And yet, what took place? That, that seed of anger that was in Cain grew all the way to murder. Man, is that not what we see today? People go from, from anger to hatred to murder. Don't we see that played out on the stage today? Look around. Watch the news. 
That's what I, anger go, goes all the way to you, you. Now I'm not just upset about something, but, but, but I'm angry about it. I've got a hatred for it. And, and to where many will walk even as far as the sin of murder. And that's exactly what we see in Cain. But look what we see in God. Verse, 14, verse, verse 15 of chapter 4. Even after all of this, God still showed his love even to a murderer. He said this, then the Lord replied to him. Because remember, Cain said, this punishment's too much. God, I can't, I can't bear this. This is too much. Look how God responded. In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. And from, from the very beginning, we see the, the depth and the breadth of, of God's love for man. I mean, Cain had committed murder and yes there was a punishment that went with that and yes there, there was a curse that went along with that but God still said but but I'm still going to protect you because I still love you, you know, I, I don't know where you are today who you can relate to more in the story Cain or, or Abel and I, I certainly won't ask for hands but what you need to know wherever you are God loves you Jesus gave his life for you for you. And it's never too late. It's never too late for you to offer your love for him, for you to offer your first, for you to offer your best. Because that's exactly what he did for you. Now I want to ask you right now, go ahead and take out your communion elements. Often remind us that at this time, your salvation is free, but it's not cheap. It's not cheap at all. Jesus gave everything he had, everything he could for you. And we're reminded of that in this time of communion. You know, here at Northside, we offer what's called close communion. It means this, it is not open to everyone, neither is it closed to anyone, but rather we say that that's up for you to determine. We believe it's open to any who would say, I am a born-again, baptized believer. And so you decide if you will participate in this time or if you will just simply reflect in this time and pray. For parents, it's a great time to educate our children and teach them the significance of communion as well. With that said, I'm going to read this morning from Mark chapter 14. Beginning in verse 12, said, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? Jesus then gave them directions of exactly where they were to go and who they were to contact and how that would fall out. Verse 22, then it says, As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away from me, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep. They will be scattered. You know, in that last little verse there,
Jesus is quoting Zechariah 3.17, but it's certainly tied to the Proto-Evangelium that we looked at in chapter 3 and verse 15. Where when, when, when man had fallen, remember the, what, what he said to, to, to Satan, to the serpent. He said, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Well, on the cross, Satan took his best shot. He struck the heel. It was coming out of that tomb where Jesus crushed his head. See, friends, when we come to communion, we realize, we, we get that picture. Jesus left heaven. He, he gave up everything. He went to the cross. He gave everything for you, for, for me, for us. And so now, during communion, we're, we're reminded of his sacrifice, but we also examine now our sacrifice for him. What is it that we give him? who gave us everything. That night it says that he, he, he took the bread that was there, that, that unleavened bread, he broke it, distributed it to, to all of them. He took it. Now, remember, he had not yet gone to the cross. This was foreshadowed. He was telling them, this is what's a, within hours about to take place. But for us on, on this side of the cross, we know exactly what this means. How broken and battered his body was for us. And he said, so don't you ever forget, take and eat. After they had eaten the bread, he took the, the juice, the wine, the cup. And he said, now, just as the bread represented my broken body, this is a new covenant. No longer will there be the slain animals at the altar. This is a blood of atonement for all who would receive it. Take and drink. Father, we love you. God, we thank you that through communion we're not only reminded of your sacrifice for us, Jesus, but we see it, we, we taste it, we know it. God, I pray that, that you would see and that you would receive our sacrifice for you and our worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.